It's time for the 112th QuackCast. This one is called Acupuncture and Allergic Rhinitis. Another opportunity for intellectual sterility. You need to keep an open mind. A common suggestion offered to us naysayers of nonsense. The usual retort concerns something to do with not letting one's brain fall out. Evaluating scams is less about having an open mind and more about having standards, a conceptual framework that is used to interpret and analyze new information. One of the benefits of writing and reading topics covered by science-based medicine is that it has clarified and sharpened the ideas by which I understand the world. These concepts were nicely summarized by Steve Novella over at Neurologica, and I reproduced them here, slightly modified. They are not quite commandments, but strong suggestions. But somehow, eight strong suggestions doesn't cut it. 1. Respect for knowledge and truth. Science-based medicine values reality and what is true. We therefore endeavor to be as reality-based as possible in our beliefs and opinions. This means subjecting all claims to a valid process of evaluation. 2. Methodological naturalism. SBM believes the world is knowable because it follows certain rules, or laws of nature. The only legitimate methods for knowing anything empirical about the universe follows this naturalistic assumption. 3. Promotion of science. Science is the only set of methods for investigating and understanding the natural world. Science is therefore a powerful tool and one of the best developments of human civilization. We therefore endeavor to promote the role of science in our society, public understanding of the findings and methods of science, and high-quality science education. This includes promoting the integrity of science and education from ideological intrusion or anti-scientific attacks. This also includes promoting high-quality science, which requires examining the process, culture, and institution of science for flaws, biases, weaknesses, and fraud. Number the fourth, promotion of science and critical thinking. Science works hand-in-hand with logic and philosophy, and therefore SBM also promotes understanding of these fields and promotion of critical thinking skills. Five, science versus pseudoscience. SBM seeks to identify and elucidate the borders between legitimate science and pseudoscience, to expose pseudoscience for what it is, and to promote knowledge of how to tell the difference. 6. Ideological freedom and free inquiry. Science and reason can only flourish in a secular society in which no ideology is imposed upon individuals or process of science or free inquiry. 7. Neuropsychological Humility Being a functional SBM proponent requires knowledge of the various ways in which we deceive ourselves, the limits and flaws in human perception and memory, and inherent biases and fallacies in cognition, and the methods that can help mitigate all these flaws and biases. And finally, 8. Consumer Protection This is a most excellent list of the mindset I try to achieve, with, I admit, variable success. I have always been reasonably well-versed in methodological naturalism. 
science in general, physics and chemistry, etc., and the basic science of medicine, physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, etc., have always been the starting point for my understanding of the world and the practice of medicine. The depth and breadth of understanding of the natural world these disciplines provide is mind-bogglingly amazing. My time in science-based medicine has reinforced the validity of methodological naturalism, which, while already strong, but added components that had never been addressed in my formal education. One is the importance of prior probability. Into the teaching program at my hospital, prior plausibility, boy, that's a tough thing to say three times real quick, is usually invoked in the context of determining if a test result is likely to be a true positive. In the real world of medical practice, prior plausibility for therapeutic interventions is rarely a consideration. In my 30 years, I have seen a lot of medical interventions come and go, but none have been attempted or abandoned because of a priori implausibility. Mine has not been a practice where magic is attempted. Good ideas for therapy, based on interfering with known pathophysiology, sometimes just are not effective. With an understanding of how the natural world functions, you add to that a touch of the consideration of prior plausibility, and you combine that with knowledge of the multitudinous ways in which we can fool ourselves and others, you can have near-instant pattern recognition that a medical intervention is nonsense, that it cannot be effective, like treating a stuffy nose. One of my favorite goofy therapies is the wet sock treatment, beloved by naturopaths and, along with homeopathy, evidence that naturopathic practice is divorced from any reality that I know. So if you have a stuffy nose, you take a pair of cotton socks and you get them completely wet in ice-cold water. And then you put them in the freezer. Then you get your feet warm. Then you soak your lower legs in a bucket. Then you dry them off. Then you put on the ice-cold socks. Then you put them on your feet. Then you cover those socks with thick wool socks. Then you go to bed with the socks on. In the morning, the socks will be dry. Is your nose still stuffy? Well, do it again. Repeat until the stuffiness goes away. Hmm. How is this wet sock treatment supposed to work? Well, quote, This treatment acts to reflexively increase the circulation and decrease congestion in the upper respiratory passages, head and throat. It has a sedating action, and many patients report they sleep much better during the treatment. This treatment is also effective for pain relief and increases the healing response during acute infections. End of quote. Now, this is nonsense, but practitioners swear by it. Listeners to this podcast are well aware of the multitudinous potential biases with assigning efficacy to a wet sock treatment. At a fundamental level, there is no difference between wet sock therapy, homeopathy, acupuncture, or any other scam for the treatment of a stuffy nose. When contrasted with known reality, they cannot work and they do not work. And when neuropsychological humility is factored in, it's highly likely that any of the effects that are noted can be accounted for by unrecognized bias on the part of the patient and practitioner. The big difference is that acupuncture, 
is a form of magic that's actually likely to get published in formerly reliable journals, complete with positive spin. And this month, February 2013, the Annals of Internal Medicine published Acupuncture in Patients with Seasonal Allergic Rhinitis, a Randomized Trial. I'm going to talk about this study, and I'm going to use, quote, ad hominem remarks, anonymous criticism, phony expertise, and the use of opinion to contradict data as a self-proclaimed skeptic. I'm going to also have a near-complete absence of substantive scientific critique, a lack of any reasoned debate, and intellectual sterility. Those are quotes from responses to the acupuncture trialist collaboration individual patient data meta-analysis in acupuncture medicine March 2013 to describe people that didn't agree with their paper. For a most amusing analysis of this paper, I strongly recommend the Respectful Insolence blog from February 8th. Some people don't take criticism well. There are a number of flaws in this study, evidently ignored or missed by the editors of the annals, that render the optimistic conclusions of the paper untenable. The first is the basic protocol. I have read it multiple times, and upon each reading it appears more ludicrous than the time before. The study takes place during allergy season, springtime for needling in Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. The patients are randomized to get real. I keep wanting to put real in quotes like fresh fish or sham acupuncture. Twelve treatments over eight weeks. And their symptoms are followed by three surveys. The rhinitis quality of life questionnaire, the RMS questionnaire, and the VAS questionnaire. Two weeks ago, I had the pleasure of listening to Dr. Ben Goldacre discuss his new book. And during the talk, he covered the use of of multiple questionnaires in assessing antidepressant therapy. He listed a dozen questionnaires in a frenetic manner that should win the title of world's fastest talker. And then he pointed out that if you ask enough questions, some of them will show significant positive effects. In this study, they evaluated the effect of acupuncture at baseline at weeks seven or eight after the first year. That would be two months later. At weeks 15 and 16, that would be four months later of the first year, and then a year later at week seven or eight. A year later. That's where the ludicrous wanders into the study. The results suggested a superiority of real acupuncture over sham acupuncture for symptoms, primarily at the eight-week mark in the treatment. They also thought that there was a benefit a year later in treatment. Quote, after the eight-week follow-up phase in the second year, small improvements favoring real acupuncture over sham acupuncture were noted, suggesting efficacy of the intervention up to a year later. That is one powerful intervention if it can have an effect on outcomes up to a year later. For my research, the RQLQ, which is the Rhinitis Quality of Life Questionnaire, 
has to be at least more than 0.5 change to be considered minimally significant. And in this study, it was at 0.5. So the response as measured by the RQLQ was just at the level of normal variation in the score. Hardly impressive. And what was the hypothetical mechanism by which acupuncture is alleged to work? They didn't know. As is always in these studies, they just start throwing out quotes from a variety of different papers that have shown minimal effects of acupuncture on people. So they include, quote, endogenous opioid peptides in the central nervous system. Always, you can't do an acupuncture study without mentioning the fact that CSF levels of endogenous opioids will go up. They mention the reduction of prostaglandin E2 levels in the brain and serum, suppression of IgE production, and modulation of Th1, Th2 cell response. Central influence of acupuncture stimulation on specific activation of brain regions, including influence of neuronal structures containing enkephalin and beta-endorphins and reduction of allergen-associated basophil activation. So it looks at like what they did is they went through and found every basic science change that they could note and mentioned it as a potential mechanism by which acupuncture may make your rhinitis better. Outside of vaccines and some biologics such as rituxan and steroid injections, I cannot think of any medical intervention, and by medical intervention I mean medicines, not surgery, whose effect upon disease physiology persists longer than a few days after cessation. To continue to alter physiology a year later would make acupuncture one of the most powerful and long-lasting medical interventions ever discovered, especially if it applied to one of the usual transient effects noted above that they alleged is the way that acupuncture was having efficacy. Or, as is more likely, the differences were all due to noise and bias. Is there the potential for noise and bias in this study? As my in-laws would say, oh yeah, sure, you betcha. First, they, quote, developed the trial interventions in a consensus process using a Delphi approach with experienced acupuncture experts. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is no standard treatment for allergic rhinitis with acupuncture. Everybody does it a different way. And the Delphi approach is a method of achieving a consensus when there is no standard. So first you ask everybody, what would you do? They send in a reply. You collate those responses and then send it back to everybody and say, look, 20% of people do it this way, 15% do it this way. Now what do you want to do? People think about it, change their minds, send in their responses. They get collated again and sent back out to everybody. And you can do that two, three, four times until you come to a consensus as to how to do something when there is no data to support you. In my world, for example, how do you treat someone with latent tuberculosis if they can't take INH? Well, they've used the Delphi approach as a methodology for coming up with a consensus opinion as to which medications to give. But even after the Delphi approach, there was no standard in these patients as to how many needles they received and even where they were placed. I went looking on the Googles for information concerning the validity of acupuncture points that were used in the trial, and I will admit defeat. Most of what I found concerned acupressure points, which, not unsurprisingly, are mostly around the nose. If they use well-defined points for allergic rhinitis, I cannot find them. 
And that's not surprising as traditional Chinese medicine is not concerned with the underlying pathophysiology of a disease like allergic rhinitis. TCM practitioners look at the tongue and feel the pulse, among other techniques, and then make up, I mean, determine a therapeutic intervention. If acupuncture really did something to the underlying pathophysiology, and there's no reason to suspect it would, it would be like choosing an antibiotic based upon a reading of goat entrails. And sometimes, I suspect, that's how antibiotics are chosen. The sham acupuncture patients, quote, were needled at least five of seven predefined non-acupuncture points bilaterally, with only superficial insertion of the needles. Needle type and diameter were not defined. The key and manual stimulation of the needles were avoided. So in essence, what they did was come up with a quasi-arbitrary, quasi-random form of needling, since there is no standard for allergic rhinitis and TCM, and compared that to a sham acupuncture, a different quasi-arbitrary, quasi-random form of needling. As we all know, it's ear, oral, and skull acupuncture that's best for ENT problems, at least according to one report. No, wait, it's laser acupuncture that's the best way to treat rhinitis. That's the ticket. If you have allergic rhinitis, use lasers. And of course, there's that classic study that shows that acupuncture works better for rhinitis if it's done during the dog days. I still can't figure out when the dog days are, except it's a good Florence and the Machine song. But that is the state of the published literature on acupuncture for rhinitis. There's as many ways to do it as you have papers published. No consistency. And given the thousands of acupuncture points, the lack of precision of defining those points in the various acupuncture schools, Chinese, German, Japanese, etc., how do they know they were not inadvertently needling another school's acupuncture point? The only part of the human body that is routinely free of acupuncture points is the genitalia, and I doubt they were needling there. Maybe the sham acupuncture was in an active site of Japanese acupuncture and they were inadvertently making the rhinitis worse. The sham group was not the same either as the quote real unquote acupuncture group. They had fewer needles, 10 with an average of 4 to 14, compared with real acupuncture which had 16 needlings with a range of 9 to 25. The sham group, as mentioned, had no manipulation of the needles, the needling was shallow, and they were not irritated in a way to generate the dicky that is supposed to be important in acupuncture. The variation in the number of needles also suggests acupuncture is a therapy practitioners make up as they go along. In scam world, that's referred to as individualization. And since a bigger placebo and more placebo will have increased effect compared to a smaller, lesser placebo, one would expect you would get more effect from real acupuncture than sham acupuncture because you're doing more to people in these studies. You're giving them more needles, you're giving them more manipulation, you're giving them more sensation, one would expect more effect. Since the sham acupuncture was less of an intervention, it was not a valid placebo. 
which they admit in the study protocol. And patients were told, quote, in this study, different types of acupuncture will be compared. One type is similar to the acupuncture treatment used in China. The other type does not follow these principles, but has also been associated with positive outcomes in clinical trials, end of quote. I suspect that a quick search of the interwebs by patients could suggest that they were getting needled in a valid acupuncture point, although not necessarily if they were getting the correct valid acupuncture points. There is almost certainly sufficient qualitative differences in the two interventions to count for the difference between sham and real acupuncture, and it is also likely that unblinding occurred. Did they check for unblinding? Well, they did ask patients, how confident do you feel that acupuncture can alleviate your complaint? How confident would you be in recommending acupuncture to a friend suffering from similar complaints? How logical does this treatment seem to you? And how successful do you think this treatment will be in alleviating other complaints? The acupuncture group scored higher in the, how confident do you feel acupuncture can alleviate your complaint question? And it's well known that the more you believe in acupuncture, the more likely you are to have a positive effect. That's really the only important characteristic. If you believe, you report effect. If you don't, you don't. The authors note, quote, although some degree of unblinding might have influenced the overall result, the major bias seems unlikely because we inform patients that two types of acupuncture treatment were being compared without mentioning such terms as placebo or sham because similar strategies of informed consent have been used in most previous acupuncture trials and because post hoc analysis suggested that differences in the study outcomes could not be explained by patient beliefs about treatment or other baseline studies. So they assessed the belief in acupuncture, which was important, and those who believed got the effect, but in an impressive manifestation of don't ask, don't tell, they did not inquire of the patients what they thought they received. A key question that was artfully avoided. And given the differences in the number of needles and the techniques used, although practitioners were, quote, instructed to deliver both in the same context and with the same behaviors, end quote, I would be skeptical they were successful. Plenty of opportunity for the clever Hans effect, where the patient would note unconscious behaviors of the acupuncturist that might suggest that they are or are not receiving the real deal. And so there's ample opportunity for enough noise and bias to be the reason that the acupuncture group was barely better than the sham group. And those differences were both trivial and clinically unimportant. When you look at the overlapping error bars of the study, you would conclude, or at least I would conclude, that acupuncture equals sham acupuncture equals doesn't work. If the graphs were for angina treated with mammary artery ligation versus sham surgery, you would not advise the patient to get surgery as they do in the accompanying editorial for acupuncture, nor would you recommend that mammary artery ligation is effective. This article is why I long gave up on the annals. The editors seem to have turned off the part of the brain that allows for critical thinking. In the summary, they say, quote, 
acupuncture led to statistically significant improvements in disease-specific quality of life and antihistamine use measures after eight weeks of treatment compared with sham acupuncture and with RM alone, but the improvements may not be clinically significant. Nay, this study is flawed in a way to suggest that any effect is biased and that acupuncture has yet to find a clinical indication with clear-cut efficacy which is what you would expect since acupuncture is based on nonsense. In the editorial, they say, with this study lending compelling support to the effectiveness of real-world acupuncture for SAR, which is seasonal allergic rhinitis. Can you say cognitive disconnect? And the patient summary in the annal says, quote, Acupuncture seemed to improve symptoms for people with seasonal allergic rhinitis, but the effects were modest and did not last beyond treatment. The improvement might have been caused in part by the volunteers' pre-existing beliefs about treatment. And it is also worth noting that the study was begun at the beginning of the seasonal rhinitis syndrome, and that as the season progressed that the symptoms went down. It's seasonal rhinitis. They looked for people who were allergic, among other things, to birch pollen. Birches usually flower for about two weeks in most of the world, although upon reviewing the birch pollen spread in Europe, it is quite a complicated issue. And different areas can have different levels of birch and other pollens. But if you have a flowering season and you start your study at the beginning of the season and you measure people through the end of the season, aren't they all going to get better just because the pollen's going to naturally go away? Aren't we seeing here just the natural history of allergic rhinitis because the flowering plants go away? Without having done correlations with the amount of pollen in the community, that makes this study equally useless. But I do not mind bad studies. Well, I do. But I realize what appears to be a good idea for a protocol at the beginning may turn out to have issues when actually carried out. And sometimes researchers cannot see the flaws of their design and outcomes because they are too enamored of the intervention. They have too much emotional and intellectual investment to see the problems. But that is why there are editors of journals and peers to review the paper. But really, are the editors paying any attention to their content? The patient summary contradicts the editorial, contradicts the paper. A careful and critical reading of the paper gives compelling evidence that acupuncture does nothing in line with all the other well-designed acupuncture studies. The cognitive disconnect between the editorial and the conclusion and the data presented in the paper is a wonder to behold. And most people will only read the spin in the abstract in the editorial and not carefully read for the fatal flaws and perhaps erroneously conclude that acupuncture has efficacy for allergic rhinitis. Yet another reason I am glad I let my annals subscription lapse years ago. The editors of the annals really need to keep a copy of the eight strong suggestions on the wall. I also wonder if this is an example of editorial Dunning-Kruger. Most of us spend our time in biomedical medicine. Pathophysiology leads to disease symptoms, and we try and alter the disease 
by altering the underlying pathophysiology. We implicitly evaluate papers with that approach in mind. The assumption is that the therapy is doing something to the patient, physically. Scan papers are not biomedical papers. Acupuncture does nothing, as delivered, and would not be expected to alter the course of rhinitis or any other disease. Acupuncture is a participatory passion play whose function is not to alter physiology, but is a method of psychological manipulation to alter perception. It is a ritual based on fantasy. That is not to say rituals do not have powerful and long-lasting effects. The ritual of marriage objectively added a ring to my finger, but there are many changes in perception of one's position in society after the ritual. Anyone who's gotten married knows that everything changes. For the better, I might add. The researchers and editors behave as if the study is representative of an actual physical intervention, when all the good studies of acupuncture strongly suggest that all the benefits are subjective and solely dependent on the belief that acupuncture will work, as in this case. Somehow I suspect the editors and reviewers at the annals had the same approach to the paper that they would have had for an antibiotic used to treat cellulitis, as if a real physiologic process is being modified. You cannot read a scam paper that way. Properly evaluating a scam paper is a learned skill, and it has taken me a long time to recognize that when evaluating results whose efficacy is unlikely because of prior plausibility, and whose success is almost always subjective, you need to look very carefully for differences in treatment groups where potential bias, often subtle, could account for treatment differences that are often just above that of random noise. Besides, nothing is actually being altered in the patient, as occurs in this study. Or I could just revert to ad hominem, point to the paper, and say, Neener, 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 you're ugly. Works for me. An ideal acupuncture study would have four groups. There's one that receives real acupuncture and is told that they're receiving either real or sham acupuncture, and a group that receives sham acupuncture and is told that they are receiving real or sham acupuncture. There would be a subjective endpoint and an objective endpoint, and I will predict in advance the result. The group that is told they are receiving real acupuncture will have more subjective benefit regardless of whether they are receiving real or sham. When compared to those who have been told that they are receiving sham acupuncture, regardless of whether they are receiving real or sham, no group will have an improvement in the objective endpoint. That sums up the effects of acupuncture. It's like all scam. It's the beer goggles of medicine. It changes nothing, but symptoms appear better for a short period of time. And acupuncture for allergic rhinitis? There are enough flaws in this study to make any effect unlikely to be due to anything but noise and bias. It's beer goggles, and Coors Light at that. And that ends the 112th QuackCast. Me, I'm going to go for a walk. It's sunny out today. Bye.